please, uh, to please pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we bow before you and we bow in joyful submission. Joyful because you're God and we know who you are and we know that you love us because we've seen your love expressed to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We've experienced it. And so we are grateful. And we submit to you because we trust you. We know that you're wise. We know that you're good. And so we submit to you in all of our ways. So now we come to this word from you. We pray that you would open our minds to understand, our hearts really to receive and to believe and and to love, treasure this word. Um, Fill us with it. May it guide, transform our lives in such a way that we would live and walk with you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Proverbs, Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 4. I want to read just one verse. Proverbs chapter 4, verse uh, 23. This is the word of the Lord. I'll give you a second. We got it? All right. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Uh, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And then we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. If you listen or read um, sermons from past generations, you'll find that many of them begin with a heading called the apology. That isn't that the preacher's saying he's sorry for preaching or saying he's sorry about the particular passage, but he used, they use the word apology in the classic sense of making a defense. And so this sense of apology as a sermon begins is to say, this is why I chose this passage. Now, I normally don't have to make an apology because it's normally just the next passage that is in the text, and the long passages that I, I work through, books of the Bible and so forth. But I just finished something. We just finished walking through the resurrection appearances of Jesus and particularly how in John 21, uh, Jesus shows himself in such a way that helps us to understand what life is like after he ascends. So we, we've worked through all of that and, 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 uh, you know, I'm going to be uh, here and there and everywhere over the summer. So uh, I began to think, what about this Sunday? And this is the passage that came to mind and here's why. Came to mind because while summers are wonderful, so many wonderful things happen in the summer. We do VBS, and that's great. But then, and the, the youth have great activities. We hire uh, uh, summer staff, uh, university students, five of them, to, 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 to help with uh, youth ministry. So they do a great number of things, mission trips and all that. Various ones do mission trips and, 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 and so forth. And, 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 you know, summer's good. We take some time off. We rest. The danger. And I know this because I've talked to many, many of you about this over the years. The danger of summer is we get out of routine. And we get out of worship routine. And we get out of Bible reading routine. And we get out of Bible study routine. And we get out of prayer group routine. All those things sort of get a little disjointed over the summer. And and that's the, the, the danger of summer. And somehow we think we can get away with that and spiritually still be okay. 
Because, well, I've done a number of good things. I did some good things with my family. We took some trips. That was great. I did some, but, but, but we have to think about the fact that we need uh, to maintain our hearts spiritually. This passage speaks to that. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That's a verse. I, I, keep it in your mind, your heart, all the time. But can I especially just give it to you for the summer uh, to, to remind yourself of it each day, each, each, each week. And we find it in the book of Proverbs, which is the, a book of wisdom in the wisdom literature. And Proverbs is aptly titled because it's a, it's a series, if you will, a whole, whole book of wise sayings. And the sayings are there from God to help us live wisely, to help us live successfully, successfully as the Bible understands it, that is in a, in a way that's pleasing to God, in a way that we were meant to live. And, and, and wisdom always begins with the end in sight. Wisdom always knows the best end. And then wisdom knows the best means to get to that end. And then wisdom knows I should do this and I will. So, so wisdom is always moral. That is the sense that has the best in mind. Thus, we say, scripture says, wisdom originates in God because he's the one who knows what's best. And it's also practical because there's means to get to that end. And we trust that God knows the means. And it's volitional in the sense that we say, yes, I will follow. I'll take up those means and I'll move to that successful, that wise end. Uh, scripture uh, gives us uh, a couple of summary statements, many of them, but I'll just highlight a couple. In Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, for instance, verse 13, the preacher says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And we go, yes, all right. I guess that's it. The means keep his commandments. We fear him. Not that we're afraid of him, but we respect him. We're humbled in his presence. And we say, you're God and we're not. So we'll follow after you. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And we see the end, don't we? We see the end is the glory of God. That we're to worship him, we're to honor him, we're even to reflect him, we're made in his image. And so that's the end, you see, we're to glorify him. Our, our Westminster Shorter Catechism, number one, uh, asks the question, what's the chief end of man? What's the chief purpose of human beings? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify him, to reflect him, to worship him, to show his worth, if you will, by our lives and we do that, in a very real sense, by enjoying him, by saying, you're God, we're not, you're great, we're not, you know we don't, so we'll follow after you. And that should be the very joy of our lives. We should enjoy following after him. And then James chapter 3 and uh, verse 13, uh, James writes this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. 
Isn't that a wonderful expression? The meekness of wisdom. Meekness says, I'm not all that. Meekness is a sense of humility, and it's a sense of humility before God's. And so we come to him in meekness for wisdom. And if we're not meek, if we're not teachable, then we'll never receive his wisdom. That's why the wisdom of the Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord, how does that end? Is the beginning of wisdom. You should know that. The beginning of the, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's meekness. We, we come in meekness, humility to him. And we receive from him. So James says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So he says conduct. He's saying, saying that wisdom always shows itself in wise living. And wise living is always good conduct. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So you see, if that's the nature of our hearts, then it's living unwisely. Then he goes on to say this. But the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So again, the end game, this harvest of righteousness that's glorifying to God that reflects his righteousness. And we sow that by means of living lives of love, of peace. With one another. Now, we need to distinguish, I suppose, um, between being smart and being wise. There are many who are brilliant but unwise because, in their brilliance, they do not know what is best, nor do they live it out. We must distinguish between having a great deal of knowledge and being wise. You can have a great deal of knowledge but be unwise. Because you really don't know the best ends or the best means and you really don't follow it. And so God says, we're to be wise. He gives us a book of wisdom, many of them. He does. So what's the wisdom of this particular verse? He says, keep your heart with all vigilance for for from it flow the springs of life. So so why do we need to keep it? Well, because life comes out of our, our hearts. You know, when people ask you what your heart is, it's, it's kind of a hard thing to define. We, we, we know it isn't just emotions and all of that. Sometimes we use it as a synonym for our emotions. But the Bible doesn't do it that way. It doesn't understand heart that way. The Bible understands our heart as the very center of our being. Another expression the Bible uses for heart is our inner man or our inner person, if you will. It's, 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 it's out of which our life really does Flow. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, our treasure, what we love, what we desire, that's this heart of ours. And so Jesus could say, out of the heart, 
The mouth speaks. And he's using mouth as kind of an, an expression for, for the expression of our lives. He says, that's where, uh, where we, if you will, are seen out of our heart. The mouth speaks out of our heart. We live out of our heart flows our lives, uh, really. But if you're a Bible reader or a Christian, or you realize, and when we say all of that, that our hearts are the problem. You know, after Adam and Eve sinned, the verdict that God puts upon humanity, we find it in Genesis <clears throat> in chapter 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, if that's true, then what we'll find ultimately that flows from us the life that flows from us is evil. The life that flows from us is really, is really death. Then we know how the prophet Jeremiah puts it in Jeremiah in chapter 17 and verse 9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? In other words, we can't really trust our hearts. If we trust our hearts in the condition in which we find them that is sinful, then if we trust them, then we'll be led astray at every point because they're deceitful. What I, what I read earlier from Mark chapter 7, from the lips of Jesus are, are sobering. He says, uh, what comes out of a person, Mark chapter 7, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. And then this long list of sins. All these evil things, he says, come from within and they defile a person. Uh, When Paul writes to the church in Rome, in Romans in chapter 1, in verse uh, 21, he writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts were darkened. So claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He says, we thought we were wise, but our hearts were darkened. And so we weren't. We became fools. We read through that through the rest of the New Testament. Now, the antidote, of course, to all of this, as we find in the scripture, is that we must have, then, a change of heart. You remember our Easter text? You remember that from Romans in chapter 10? That if we believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with our mouths that he is Lord, then we are saved, that is, saved from the punishment to our sin and all of that. But that requires a change of heart. Somehow something has to happen so that our hearts are changed. The good news is that that is a work of God, that God can do that. We can't change our hearts, but he can. Remember the prophet Ezekiel makes a promise that God will take out our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his ways. The, the prophet Jeremiah says that God will write his laws upon our minds and put them in our hearts. And Jesus said that the Holy Spirit can work in such a way 
that will give us new life so that we will in fact be born again. And then the Bible speaks differently about the hearts of those who have been born again, hearts of those who have been changed and transformed. For instance, in Romans chapter 5, we read this. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the good news is that there's been a change of heart. And what's happened in our hearts is that the love of God has been poured into them. And when that happens, we're transformed, you see. Then in Romans chapter 6 and verse 17, he writes, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. What a tremendous word that is, that something's happened, that the Holy Spirit has worked in such a way in our hearts as the love of God has been poured out into our hearts that, that now... The once slaves to sin, now we're slaves, he says, to righteousness um, and have become obedient from the heart. That is, we really believe. And now he says you can really live, can really live this out. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure Water, that something's happened, and he sprinkled us clean. Baptism is so wonderful, isn't it? I, I don't know about you, but when I see water, today when you go home and you put your little glass up to the fridge and you get water, think baptism, right? Allow that, just to cue your mind that our hearts have been sprinkled. The author of Hebrews was a Presbyterian. Um, the author of Hebrews says that our hearts were sprinkled with the blood of Christ, if you will, to cleanse us, this, this cleansing stream. So our hearts are new. Our hearts are different, you see, because of the work of God, His Holy Spirit in us, and now full assurance for us of faith. And all that then enabled us to believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and that enabled us to confess with our mouth that He is, in fact, the Lord, the Lord He's conquered sin and death. The Lord has conquered our hearts. The Lord who saved us. So now, what are we to do? Well, this passage in Proverbs, the wisdom of God, says that we're to keep our hearts with all vigilance. Why? Because out of our hearts flow life. Flow who we are. So what are we to do? We're to keep our hearts hearts. Uh, John Flavel, a 17th century English uh, pastor, uh, wrote a sermon on this passage that's about 60 pages long. You'll be thankful mine isn't that long. But if I could steal a sentence from him. He says, the keeping and right managing of the heart 
in every condition is the great business of the Christian. The keeping and right managing of the heart in every condition is the great business of the Christian. John Owen, a contemporary of his, Flavos, put it more soberly. He said, "Upon Hereupon do all events depend, the heart being kept. The whole course of life here will be according to the mind of God, and the end of it will be the enjoyment of him hereafter. This being neglected, life will be lost. Life will be lost here as unto obedience, and hereafter as to glory. He says, everything depends upon our keeping the heart. The whole course of our life now and the present will be the enjoyment of God if we do that. But if we don't, we'll be lost, he says. Lost forever. But have you ever wondered, if God has changed our hearts, then why do we need to keep them? I mean, why, why can't we just say they're changed? That's it. Done deal. All over. Let's just enjoy holiness together. Um, well, we ask that question because we realize that there's more in our hearts than the purity of God that he has changed us into. Uh, we see it. We realize it as we're tempted and we, we sin. We realize there's more to our hearts than just this transformation. We know a day will come when that will all be true, when we'll be pure of heart totally and utterly and won't be able to sin. But now we find ourselves in this condition where we're able to sin and able not to sin. We're able not to sin because of the work of God in us. And yet still we realize that, 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 that we still do sin. So he says that we're to keep our, our hearts. Um, we sang this morning uh, one of my favorites, if you will, hymns of the faith and uh, uh, because I love this expression it's one of the expressions that goes through my head every day tune my heart to sing your grace tune it it gets out of tune in fact Flavel John Flavel this 17th century Puritan uh, in his sermon compares our hearts to a musical instrument and he says that just like a musical instrument can get out of tune so can our hearts he puts it like this He says, a gracious heart is like a musical instrument, which though it be exactly tuned, a small matter brings it out of tune again. Yea, hand it aside but a little, and it will need setting again before another lesson can be played upon it. And isn't it true? I mean, it's true for instruments. If you you bump them or the change in humidity or move them or play them too much, they get out of tune. And, and, and the same thing with our, with our hearts. Sometimes it doesn't take much, just a, just a little bump. And we're called by God to tune, to tune our hearts. He gives to us his, that responsibility. And we say, well, why, God, don't you just do it? And he says, well, I do just do it, but I don't do it without you. I give you this command. I give you this responsibility. I remember one of my Sunday school teachers said to me one day, she said, the responsibility that God gives to us is our response to his ability. He said, oh, yes. We're always dependent upon his grace. But still, we're in it. 
And thus we respond to his ability. So when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he summarizes all of this with these words. He says, so work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We keep our hearts confidently because we know that God is at work, that he will help us. He'll help us keep, if you will, our our hearts. But this expression is very dramatic. He says, keep your heart with all vigilance. If you have a newer international version, it says, above all else, guard your hearts. And that above all else really is a, is, is a, a fitting translation for vigilance or diligence. Because really the, the Hebrew gives this sense. And that is, above everything else that you guard, make sure you guard your heart. Or, if you don't guard anything else, make sure you guard your heart. Have you ever thought about all the things that we guard? And how much money and how much effort and how much time we spend guarding? I mean, we, 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 we guard our property with locks and security systems and insurance and police and all that. We, we guard that. We guard our, 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 our kids by vetting their babysitters and teachers and watching their health and what they eat and where they go and all of that. And so we guard them. We, we, we guard our, our, our security with passwords that we forget. <laughs> but uh, we guard all of that. Uh, we, we guard our privacy. Uh, we, we, we watch who we share our innermost thoughts with and life with. We, we guard... That we guard our wealth with insurance and, and locks and financial advisors and we guard our jobs by getting training and being conscientious in our work and sacrificing our time to make sure that we're at work and we do that. We guard our marriages by putting boundaries on, on other relationships. We guard our marriages by reading books and going to classes and retreats and, and having date nights and all of that. We guard our airports and other public gatherings these days with all kinds of contraptions and all kinds of things. And so we spend a great deal of time and effort guarding. And so the Lord says to us, what about your heart? What about your heart? Do you really give time and energy and space to guarding your hearts? And so we might ask the question, from what do we guard our hearts and how? Well, we could spend a great deal of time on this flavor, we'll spend about 50 pages, but I'll, I'll just summarize a bit from another sermon, if I could plagiarize a sermon from the author of Hebrews. Um, this book in the New Testament is often referred to as a sermon. And what we find here is that the author of Hebrews lays out for us many dangers to our hearts, though he doesn't put it exactly that way, many dangers to our hearts, and solutions, if you will, remedies to these dangers to our hearts. Let me just highlight a few of the dangers. I think, I hope with me you'll resonate with some of these at least. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, the author writes this. He says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's a great danger for believers to drift was true in the early church. It's true in our lives as well. 
And of course, the image there is a boat that had been docked, had been tied up and then got untied from the dock. And at first you look at it and it seems fine. Everything seems fine. It's in the place it should be. And you look out again and you say, it seems a little off, but I can't really tell. It's probably okay. And then after a while you say, where's the boat? It just sort of drifts, sort of drifts. And we just sort of drift. You can drift away from the spiritual disciplines that keep our heart. We can drift away from gatherings. It's my fear of summer that as we travel, we'll forget the fact that we're wired in such a way that one day in seven, we need to gather with other believers and worship. And if we don't, then our lives become unraveled before we know it. And, and at first, it seems okay. We just missed one or two. And then, you know, but then after a while, there's something. And out of us comes things that we say, that shouldn't be there. Or we get away from our Bible reading. We get away from our, our prayer groups. Because I don't know about you, but I schedule Bible studies with people and prayer groups with people. Because if I don't, I may not read the Bible that day or pray. Sorry, I know. Probably going to dock my pay. But it's just human, right? And so we do it together. We, we worship together. We gather together. We do these things together. And so, so it's easy to drift away. And, and, and we can drift away for a lot of good things. For family commitments. For getting some rest and all of that. But we have to be careful not to drift away. And then chapter 3, another danger. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin lies to us. Sin says, if you think this, if you do this, your life will be great. Sin doesn't come to you and say, if you think this and do this, it will kill you. And so much of sin, even the Bible says, sin can be pleasurable for a season, for a time. And we we, we forget about how we're to think and how we're to live. And we buy into the world's standards and the world's evaluations and the world's understanding of life and we follow any deceitfulness left in our own hearts and and after a while those patterns of life develop we didn't mean to do it we just started out and it seemed good and now it seems good and now we're stuck in that habit of sin it's a danger a danger for us And then this passage in Hebrews chapter 6, it's one of those controversial passages. But uh, the author writes this, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this will do if God permits. For it's possible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and upholding him to contempt. Whatever else that means. It means there's a great danger in being part of the community for a while and it only being superficial not really penetrating the heart so much so that you can leave it and not miss it and so you'll never really come back because there was never anything there in the first place the great danger of just hanging around getting the benefits of the community of believers but not really 
taking it in, not really believing. And then he says, there's another danger in, in chapter 10. What's happening is that the, some of, in, in the church there are being persecuted for their faith. And so in verse 35, in the context of that, he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. <clears throat> so there, there can be a, a weariness and a fear, really, that comes over. If you find yourself in circles and situations where there's a sense of persecution, when you find yourself ostracized, when you find yourself being put out because, because you're a believer in Jesus, and, 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 and that in itself can can be a danger to us because we can think I can compromise here, I can compromise there so I can fit in with them so they won't reject me and all will be well. And he says, no, 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 be careful. Be careful. Be careful. And then in chapter 12, he says, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary, he says. Verse 3, consider Jesus who endured from sinners such great hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. And don't forget. And don't become, he says, weary from this. We can become weary because of the hardships of life. I mean, let's face it, after a while, these things weigh upon us. There can be relational difficulties in our lives that make us weary. There can be physical Situations in our bodies that make us feel weary. We can have financial stresses. We can have deep disappointments. We can have deep grief. All of that is true in life. It's true for unbelievers. It's true for believers. We live real life. We face real issues. We face real difficulties. Real hardships come to us. And if we're not careful, he says, after a while, these things are weigh on us and we'll become discouraged. We'll become discouraged, you see. And it will affect our hearts. So what's the remedy to all of this? Well, turn back to Hebrews chapter 1 to see them. He begins this remedy of drifting away. He says, therefore, verse 1, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. In other words, we need to pay attention. To what we've heard. What have we heard? We've heard the word of God. In fact, in chapter 4, he speaks of the word of God like this. Verse 11, he says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He says, he says make sure, if you're going to keep your heart... If you're going to guard it, if you're going to watch over it appropriately, you need to make sure that you are taking in the word of God. Don't drift away from it. You have to have it daily. Or you'll drift, you see. Just be cautious of all of that. We read through the scripture itself. Psalm 19 says that the word of God is pure and it revives the soul. It keeps us from becoming weary. And you say, how does it do that? And I say, well, because it's alive. It isn't like any other word. Oh, we can speak words of encouragement to each other in various ways, and that's nice and that works, and we can hug each other, and that's all good. But there's something powerful about the word of God. Something powerful about the words in this book. It's alive. When I was a kid, my, my mom 
we put anything on top of a Bible, she would take it off. And we'd say, What's, why, Mom? And she said, it's alive. <laughs> you know? You go, okay. Got it. I know, I know what you're saying, you know? It's alive. It changes our hearts. I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. See, as the word takes up and abides in us, takes up increasing amounts, if you will, of our hearts, we can say it that way, then what comes out of us is consistent with what's in us. And if the word of God is really in us, it abides in us, it lives in us, then that's what comes out of us. You see, there's a danger. In fact, I learned this from Ryan Mayo, who you're talking. Our piano got tuned a while back. And I said to Ryan, I said, was it out of tune? And he said, interestingly, it was, but it was in tune with itself. That is, when you played it, just it, you wouldn't notice anything. It sounded wonderful. But when you took the real tuning instrument and put it up against the piano, it was out of tune. But it didn't know it. I asked it. And see, the danger for us is we can be in tune with ourselves, what we think about God, or we can be in tune with the world, what the world thinks about God, and be out of tune with God. Because we need the tuning instrument, right? We need to go back to the scriptures and know this is what's true about God. I mean, everything may seem fine with us. We may be getting along perfectly well, uh, and we may sound great, but, but, but we're not. And so we need, you see, to have this word of God in us. And then this sense of superficiality. How does, how does the author of Hebrews remedy that? Well, he says we remedy it like this. And there from that point in chapter 6, he's already started, but he continues to lay out the truth of the gospel. And so we have this expression, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Think it through. And so the, the, the author of Hebrews says, well, here is it. Jesus has come and instituted a new covenant. Uh, he came to be our high priest to represent us. He came to be our sacrifice to give himself for us. He is the very temple of God. Uh, trust in him. In fact, take heart in the fact that he lives to intercede for you. And then the persecution. He says, he says, remember something. He said, there was a while back when you were being persecuted. He said, verse 34. And he says, for you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. He says, think back. Think back in other times in your life when, yes, you were persecuted, but God was faithful. You you look at the lives of other people, the whole of Hebrews chapter 11, this hallmark, this hall of fame, faith uh, chapter of, of, of those who have gone before us. Read about their lives. Look how faithful God was. And he says, he's faithful to you too. And he says, remember this in a little while. The coming one will come without delay. And, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Don't shrink back. Don't shrink back. And then the hardships, he says, remember this. That when difficulties come, you have a heavenly father. 
who is sovereign over all the affairs of life. And if you're going through a hardship and it's not going away, then you can trust that your heavenly Father has it for you. And he's wise. He knows what's best for you. And he's good. He'll work in you to bring good from it to ultimately bless you. And you may say, I don't know why this has come to me. And you may never know that. And you may say, did it really take that to teach me this? And we'll have to trust that it did. Because our Heavenly Father is good. That's what he says. So endure it. But he says, remember, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And then he blesses us at the end by saying, now to him who is able, uh, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good for doing his will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in his sight. First remedy, the word of God. Second remedy is that we're to pray. In chapter four, he speaks to us about, about praying. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. We need to continue to pray. In fact, I have taped up in a particular part of my desk. It's a secret to me. This little prayer of uh, St. Augustine. Our hearts are cold. Warm them with your selfless love. Our hearts are sinful. Cleanse them with your precious blood. Our hearts are weak. Strengthen them with your joyous spirit. Our hearts are empty. Fill them with your divine presence. Oh, Jesus, our hearts are yours. Possess them always and only for yourself. We mustn't stop praying. Then we need to be together. This is, for me, the great danger of of summer. Um, As my kids know, when we're traveling on a Sunday, if I'm not preaching somewhere else, and we're traveling, we always go to a church. Because it's Sunday. That's what you do. Because I really do believe that we're wired that one day in seven we have to stop everything and gather with other believers. And if we don't, it will be to our detriment. And if we do, it will be to our help. And, uh, and yet, you know, I don't know about you. But when I'm in a gathering with other people that I don't really know, I know they're Christians, but I don't really know them. It's really hard for me to kind of worship. And I have to be careful not to make it a field trip. You know, like, oh, we could do that. Oh, they should do that. We should do that. And so I have to actually worship, you know? And, and, and I get out of sorts uh, when I'm not with you on Sundays, when I'm uh, worshiping uh, somewhere else, if you will. But we need to gather. We need to gather together. You know, as the author of Hebrews puts it in chapter 3, uh, verse um, 13, he says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. See, we need that exhortation from each other. You know, I get, I get to do that uh, here every Sunday. But we do it in Sunday school classes. You do it in Bible studies. But you do it just by arriving, just together. What you're saying to each other, just gathering together with other believers, whether it's here or another place, you're gathering and you're, and you're saying, 
that God is good and he will help us. We need to follow his way. And so that's an encouragement uh, to us all uh, to do that. And in chapter 10, the author of Hebrews uh, puts it like this. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession uh, of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet uh, meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, we need to do that. It's just simply true. How do you guard your heart? By immersing yourself in the word of God. How do you guard your heart? By praying. How do you guard your heart? By gathering together and hearing the word. Receiving sacraments. And loving one another. And serving one another. And then you say, tell me something I don't know. And I say, I hope I never do. But along with me, let's do it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you're with us. That you will enable us by your word and spirit to guard our hearts. Cause us, I pray, to be diligent to above all else to guard our hearts. Enable us to believe your word and live it out. And this I pray in Jesus' name.